and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're talking about political uncertainty in Germany and how it's going to affect Europe and European foreign policy. First, the facts. The Jamaica negotiations have broken down and it's now clear that there will not be a four-party coalition with the CDU, CSU, Green Party and Liberal FDP party. Secondly, there are three main scenarios that people are talking about. A new grand coalition with the SPD and the CDU. This depends on the President Steinmeier persuading the SPD to change their position and, and join a government or a minority government, either the CDU on its own or with the Greens and the FDP, or new elections. To help me make sense of this, how we got here, what's gonna happen next, and what it means for Europe, I have two amazing, quite prescient experts uh, joining me from Berlin. Josef Janning, who is the head of our office there and a senior policy fellow, and Ulrike Franke, who is a policy fellow in that office. We spoke in September, just before the elections happened, and I asked you both for your predictions, and uh, you were both pretty down on the prospects of a Jamaica coalition. Josef gave it a generous 20% chance, but Ulrike said that it was there was only a 1% chance, when she didn't even think the chances were that high. So you've been right about that. Um, be interesting to, to get your predictions uh, about what's going to happen next at the end of this podcast so we can keep this accountability um, going as we move forwards. Don't, don't break a winning streak, Mark. <laughs> so I think maybe before we look at the future, it'd be good to look at the past. Why did the Merkel method not work this time? I mean, uh, she is known as this amazing pragmatist who's able to bring together the unreconcilable. She did it in the Euro crisis. She did it in Russia, on Russia. She tried to do it on, on a whole series of different areas. She's like a political amoeba that can take on any shape. So how come she failed to, to, to bring these four parties together? Well, if I can come in, I think I think the trust wasn't there. I think um, it's true that Merkel normally has been very good at bringing different fractions together and she's been very good at these super late night talks and at the end everyone agrees but a coalition is not a deal it's more like a marriage and I think you can't go into a marriage without a minimum of trust and this is where I, I very much believe Christian Lindner who who said he, he didn't single out specific things this is why the negotiations failed I mean there were a few like migration and energy climate, things like that. But I don't think it was anything uh, in particular with regard to content. But I think that the trust wasn't there and Merkel couldn't create it either. What do you think, Josef? If it's a marriage, Ulrike, uh, then, then it's, it, it has all of the processes of an arranged marriage, <laughs> you know, where the parents barter about the, uh, about the price, the number of camels or what, what the gold or what have you. I think uh, Merkel's method works when... Uh, the principal decision to do something together or the recognition that one is obliged to do something together uh, has been taken. And then the, the question is, how do we proceed? Uh, the method doesn't work uh, that well when it is about building the initial uh, coalition. In all of her previous uh, um, uh, government formation processes, the decision for Merkel, for Merkel was clear because it was basically dictated by the results of the elections. This time, this is not the case. This time, it, is, it was a unique 
um, scenario, uh, the first time ever of a, a coalition of, of that color combination and of that, that size. Uh, and here it showed that, that Merkel's method did not work. She doesn't inspire in that sense. She doesn't pull uh, the other players along, but they have to want to come along for her method to work. And how much of the breakdown was about her track record in government with other coalition partners? Because it's not been a great process for anybody who's gone into government with Angela Merkel. She is like this black widow spider that chews up and devours all of her coalition partners after they've been in government with her for a term. You know, they're lucky if they get back into the Bundestag at all, uh, but they're certainly much diminished. Um, do you think it's because people didn't want to risk going with her personally? I mean, it was striking how both the uh, FDP um, well, in fact, particularly FDP has blamed her personally for, for, for messing this up. Well, yes, in the FDP case, uh, I think there is there's something to it. But one has to uh, also add that the Liberals spoiled their own game, you know, because they, they came in as a single-issue party uh, wanting a major tax reform, could not succeed and, and settled you for... You mean back in 2009, for, rather than this time? And basically, it was not clear what they really wanted in government. Whereas, you know, with the, with the two social democratic uh, governments that Merkel has led, with the, the grand coalitions, with the SPD in there, I think it was largely due to the, to the SPD's own problem. They achieved quite something on their agenda. Uh, think about uh, the, the pension reform. Think about the, the uh, reforms, the social uh, welfare state reforms they did uh, over the past legislative period. But they are somewhat uh, um, constrained to, to talk about that positively because that will automatically remind people that it was Chancellor Schroeder to do hearts for the, the combination of unemployment benefits and, and, and welfare. Uh, and it was uh, Muntefering in the first grand coalition to do the retirement age at, uh, at 67. You know, something that the Social Democrats until this day <coughs> are not uh, uh, at ease with. You know, they, they want to make people forget uh, that it was them to do that. And I don't think that you can, you can win out of a grand coalition if you can't uh, uh, actively communicate uh, your own doings. Okay. Um, and, sorry, Rika, I didn't want to cut you off there. No, no worries. I, I, I like the image. It's quite an image you painted with Merkel as the black widow. Um, I, I think there's only a little bit of this in there, to be honest. I think that the situation has changed quite a lot simply because this is Merkel's last term. So I think that whoever is in a coalition um, may be able to kind of position themselves um, rather well, potentially for next time. So I think, yes, there may be some fear that, that Merkel or the CDU is going to swallow up some of the, the, the ideas, the impetus that comes out of uh, the coalition partners. But I don't think that was the main, the main problem. for. The Wasn't her partners. last term meant to be the last term? <laughs> I I don't remember that that clearly. I mean, I, it, there was a question at the beginning of this term whether she would do it again or not, but um, I, I think most people expected it. But I would say this time really is the last time. Well, I think the last, the last term was really the last term. This will be a, an after term. Now, if she wins again, uh, basically people will know that, that actually Merkel's real rule in German politics ended in September 2017. So you think that, that this will be some sort of zombie term if she, if she carries on as Chancellor? It's, you know, it, it is, 
it is three plus one terms. It's the last term will make it evident that uh, actually her uh, time in German at the helm of German politics is over. No. And it's just the, the dynamics of German politics that doesn't allow the chancellor to actually then end uh, one's uh, rule uh, at the climax of one's uh, image, reputation or power. That's quite a good bridge to the second thing which we need to talk about, which is uh, grand coalition, minority government, new elections. What's next? Is Merkel still going to be chancellor? Rika, do you want to do your crystal ball gazing, seeing as you were so great about the Jamaica coalition last time. <laughs> well, the problem is that this time I disagree with uh, the polling numbers. So um, we had a new poll just uh, two days ago or, or yesterday where the majority of Germans said that they would prefer a snap election, another round of elections, 63% in, in um, exact numbers, and only 29 want a minority government. Um, Personally, I think that a minority government could actually be quite an interesting situation um, and, and democratically um, a chance for, for Germany to deal with a number of things. But it's true that most Germans don't like it. And Angela Merkel has said very clearly in an interview right after the, the coalition talks broke down that she doesn't like it. Though it seems to me that, that uh, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the president, who now has all the cards in his hand, um, isn't too keen on, on having another round of elections either. So we, we shall see. I think it's more likely, it looks more likely that there will be another round of elections, though I think minority government could be interesting, especially because, as a last point, the poll numbers in terms of who would you vote for if there was another election on Sunday, they haven't, they haven't changed at all since the last election. So we may do another round of elections and end up exactly where we started. So if we are talking about minority government, Josef, is that a minority government with just the CDU or is it with the CDU and the FDP or is it with the Green Party and the CDU? Well, I think if there was a minority government, if I was the CDU, I wanted to, to run it myself. You know, at least uh, uh, you would have uh, no uh, negotiations to do within the government, but the, the government would be one color and you would have to work with the others to, to get a majority. Now, if the Social Democrats would offer something like that to the Christian Democrats, which is not entirely excluded, uh, Merkel would still hesitate strongly because that would mean rather than having the Social Democrats uh, at the cabinet table and tie it into cabinet discipline, um, she would have to rely on their word that on certain issues that they would have agreed upon before on, in a minority government sort of agreement, um, uh, that, that she could actually then uh, trust their word that they would stand in all of the possible critical uh, decisions that would have to be taken in Parliament. Uh, and that is something I think that she, after 12 years in the Chancellorship, is not keen on doing, is to be so much in the hands of others that she has no influence. Can I take the cynical point of view for once? Go on, be cynical, Rika. We I, I, I never get to do this. This is fun. Because from what uh, Josef said, I would think a cynic might say that the CDU doesn't, in fact, have enough policies to do a minority government all by themselves. I mean, in terms of what we've seen over the last, well, 12 years, um, it, the claim has always been that the CDU swallows up everything from their coalition partners and all the main ideas come from them. So if you only have the CDU, um, w w what kind of policies can we expect? Interesting question, especially after these coalition agreements or coalition talks, sorry, where the CDU 
was the quietest party of all. I mean, we all know what the CSU wanted, what the FDP wanted, what the Greens wanted. The CDU kind of played the, the role of the mediator. So if they do it by themselves, hmm, interesting. I'd say that makes them the perfect party for a minority government. You know, because they can, if, if, if they are not committed very strongly on many issues, they have the liberty to, uh, uh, to make compromises with other parties in Parliament to do that. Now, I don't still uh, believe that this is a, a workable option because, because of uh, party politics being what they are and the German, they believe that, that um, a government has to have the ability to actually decide something um, in, in critical situations or sometimes even against um, the, 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 the tide of the time. You know? And for that, it needs a solid backing. The Chancellor needs a solid backing in Parliament. So basically, you seem to be ruling out the idea that the SPD before an election is going to agree to a grand coalition. So it's either going to be a minority government or new elections. Well, I think the, in the SPD, it has to do with their own internal situation. I think there are quite a couple of people who would say either we, we should not rule out a grand coalition in principle, because otherwise, you know, what would we then be campaigning for in the next general? No, no, if there is an election, that's a different thing, but before the elections. Yeah, but, you know, either there are those who say either we have to be prepared to enter into a, a grand coalition in order to give this country a stable uh, government, because that's part of the responsibility of the parties, pretty much in the way that uh, Steinmeier has phrased it, but, or they would say we at least need to offer uh, the Christian Democrats an agreement uh, to support them on a couple of essential issues, which would then have to be negotiated between the two sides. But to go for new elections in the way that uh, Martin Schulz, the party chairman, has done it, uh, meets some criticism in the party. No? And, okay. uh, so so uh, I think it, it, it has to do with their internal situation, with their struggle, with the generational change that is going on there, uh, what will eventually decide where the SPD will go. So before we move on to the consequences for Europe, um, I'd like to do a couple of things. One is to talk a bit about the prospects for Angela Merkel herself. Is this high noon for her? Or is she going to be the leader of the CDU under all of these different scenarios? Silence. Nobody wants to pronounce <laughs> about Angela Merkel's future. Exactly. No one wants to take on Angela Merkel because so many times, you know, one thought that surely must be it. And then she came back. So, Josef, what do you think? I think she is determined to, to stay through this even though for her, for her reputation, it is humiliating. Also for her standing at, uh, uh, in the chair of the party. Uh, this is a very difficult situation because the number of her critics inside her own party will grow, whatever she does. But uh, it, it seems to me that she has concluded for herself that to, to leave at this point, to walk away from this situation uh, would sort of ruin uh, the image of her entire chancellorship. So she does not want it to end this way. So I think she will swallow all sorts of difficulties, of humiliating situations. You know, she will have to go through three consecutive uh, attempts to, to be elected chancellor in parliament in order to get to new elections, now, in order to, to sit through and then uh, build a new government that she can lead uh, and she will not be the same uh, uh, leader in terms of strength and 
and grip uh, on the parties, but she will try. And is the party going to stand by her? The party has little choice at this point, you know, because the, uh, particularly when it, when it goes into new elections, you know, who would want to risk his political uh, future by uh, stepping, uh, you know, staging a revolution against Merkel and then um, lose it? You know? So you don't think that the, the, the kind of uh, vocal critics like Jan Spahn are going to step forward and, and, and try a putsch in the way that Merkel did um, against... If, if he wants to commit political suicide, he should do that. <laughs> Merkel has announced that she wants to run. So anybody who wants to change the course of the party has to argue uh, that Merkel needs to be replaced. And to do that at this point in time, and this, in this critical moment for for the uh, for the CDU uh, is suicidal. So uh, nobody will dare to do that. It needs much better preparation, and it needs kind of uh, assembling the troops and maximizing the support that you have if you actually want uh, to uh, uh, oust uh, a sitting chancellor, even though it is a caretaker chancellor. And to support this point, I mean, Merkel still has quite a lot of popularity within the Germans, um, within the German population. So. Her, her popularity has only suffered, you know, according to the latest poll, by 3% throughout these Jamaica negotiations. 58% still feel or still want her as a chancellor, so organizing a coup against her comes with a lot of risks. So this is a sort of, uh, difficult thing to get you to do predictions on because there are basically four different governing models. So Corsa Coalition, a green-black coalition. Oh, I suppose there's still Jamaica as well, so I suppose there's... There's even five potential uh, situations, which is a cocoa. Oh, there's, I suppose, six, actually, <laughs> now that we're um, dangers of not having heavily scripted podcasts we have to make this up as we go along. So there's six possible governments, aren't there? There's a Corsa Coalition, a Jamaica, a Green Black, a Yellow Black, a minority CDU government or uh, a kind of red, green, red, red, green government, I suppose. These would be the six most likely options um, either before or after the elections. So maybe we should do one thing, which is what do you think the chances of new elections are from the two of you? Just a number. I'd say it's an, it's an 80 to 20 percent chance for new elections. 80 percent chance of new elections. And, and Rika? I'd go much lower. Um, uh, it's probably more likely than not, but I, yeah, 50-50. A number will suffice, Rika. We don't need the internal 50-50. 50-50, okay. And then yeah. after the elections, if you have to rank my six things, maybe you do the top three. What are the three most likely outcomes for, from your perspective? After the election. Or, or if there is no elections for you. Well, Yours okay, so that's very, that's very different. So, sorry, so after the election. After the election, I think um, the GroKo Grand Coalition is the more most likely because it's unlikely that things are going to change majorly. After that comes Jamaica, maybe. And then minority governments of whatever form. I mean, there's no point in speculating how that's going to look like after the election. And Josef? I... I list the same number but in slightly different sequence. I still believe that after an election uh, there will be another attempt for Jamaica first and then GOCO, a grand coalition. Okay. All right. Well, you know, luckily uh, there will be a record of everything you've said 
on iTunes forever. Yeah. So we can co come back in a few weeks or months, however long it takes for this process to, to uh, work its way through uh, and do another podcast. So the third question we need to deal with in this podcast is, because this has all been very interesting for Germany, but for the European Union, this election was also seen as having big stakes. It was surprising how much of uh, Emmanuel Macron's credibility was staked not just on delivering reforms to the labour market and public spending in France, but to relaunching the European Union. And that was something which was not just seen as a, a grand vision for France, but within the context of a renewed, re-energised Franco-German motor. And Angela Merkel was, I think, quite an important part of his, um, of his calculations. What does the confusion that we're going to have, which could last yet for, for at least several more weeks, if not months, mean for uh, the future of Europe? And does it destroy the optimism that people had for a European relaunch? Well, yes, it, it, I think it will certainly sober a lot of people uh, who had high-flying hopes that you know the, the first half year of 2018 would be a, a period of great uh, break up and, and new horizons and, and a reform agenda and, and such. Um, there will still be some talk about that in European circles, but the essential um, baseline will miss, which is the Franco-German understanding. Um, and that is, I think that's the, the major fallout for Europe is that actually the window of opportunity before the next uh, elections to the European Parliament uh, which is actually 2018, and which is actually the first half of 2018, more than the second, uh, will not be available uh, to uh, Berlin and Paris. Uh, Macron will be left alone with his high-flying ideas, and that, I think, to him, is a major blow to the momentum of his presidency. What do you think, Rika? Yeah, I largely agree. I mean, in a way, it's a bit of an interesting um, change that now you have someone strong with... Um, a lot of momentum in France, and you don't really have anyone to answer that call in, in Germany. I mean, um, first of all, it's important we do have an acting government that has still legitimacy, so, you know, it's not as if things are going to fall apart, but it's yeah, true that Sigma this government... Yeah, Sigmar Gabriel seems to be having the time of his life while all of this stuff's going on, <laughs> well, going yeah. around the world, making all sorts of decisions. But, but this is a government that won't be able to do any any grand bargains uh, with France, mainly because you know um, what what Emmanuel Macron has proposed was one of the issues that were debated quite heatedly in the in the negotiations in the coalition negotiations. So the acting government just can't decide on these things. So they, yeah, things are going to slow down, which certainly is a pity. Um, and there's there's you know kind of little you can do about it. But isn't the breakdown of the Jamaica talks possibly a, a benefit for that agenda? I mean, it was very interesting how, uh, in fact, this was one of our main topics when we talked about this uh, back in September, the, the FDP as uh, the enemies of Europe, um, hmm. uh, opposing debt mutualization, opposing a lot of the things which, which uh, Emmanuel Macron was calling for. And that does seem to be one of the, the reasons why the FDP pulled back. In fact, yesterday, Christian Lindner said that in the talks, the CDU refused to promise that there would be no debt mutualization. So in some yeah. ways, the fact that the FDP is not likely to be part of the future of German government could mean that 
Macron could get a better partner rather than the worse one. Uh, I, I, we did discuss this before the election on the last podcast, and I do feel that this view of the FDP as kind of the enemy of, of, of European reform really is much exaggerated and, and in large parts really false. Um, I mean, yes, they, they don't like Macron's proposals for um, the euro reform, but it's not as if that's the only thing that's possible and it's saving uh, Europe or, or the euro. Um, actually, I, I would make a different argument, mainly that in a government that has the FDP in it, if that government agreed to some of the FDP's main policies, namely lowering taxes and spending more on infrastructure, um, honestly, that could be better for the European economy than any kind of institutional uh, change in, in the Eurozone that has been proposed. So that I don't, I do feel German that we... That's a if you don't mind me saying, Ulrike. That, that is possible. I just, sure I just don't many like this people this in narrative. France will find themselves uh, <laughs> blown away <laughs> yeah. by your logic. Well, economically, I think I do have a point. I mean, again, I, I get, I, I get it that, of course, France would like someone in Germany who wants everything that Macron wants. That's a legitimate, you know, ask. But um, you know, you can't really expect that. And I just don't like this narrative of, of saying, you know, this is certainly going to be better for, um, for Europe because uh, the FDP will not hold these institutional reforms. There are other ways to achieve achieve these things. What do you think, Josef? Well, I'm, I'm. Uh... I have some second thoughts about the argument in the first place. So I don't think that that Lindner's argument is very serious. To break off negotiations with the Christian Democrats over the idea that the Christian Democrats could could rush into debt neutralization in Europe, I think that's just that's just uh, uh, weird. You know, yeah. because the Christian Democrats they are pro-European and they are ready also to make some sacrifice in order to keep Europe together and make it stronger. But they are uh, in no way uh, uh, disinterested in, in the principal positions um, of, of Germany in, uh, on the debt issue. So if they were uh, considering a compromise, it would certainly be some, a compromise that also a liberal party could support if they were not in campaign mode. So I think Rika is right that, that actually a different government, a grand coalition, could probably be more forthcoming, could be more um, responsive to the Macron agenda, uh, and certainly a black-green uh, coalition government, if it had a majority, could be that. Uh, but it would still uh, be the Christian Democrats who would be rather cautious to, uh, to enter into uh, uh, any new agreements. But, you know, and that I think is your point, Mark. I think a, a, uh, the, the question is, will the next German government have the, have the strength to, to uh, uh, recognize that in its own interest uh, there, there is social stability in Europe and that uh, over the longer term Germany has to find a way to share its wealth with its European partners. So the question is not whether there is a form of transfer, but the question is how to do this. And I think a weak government uh, will be incapable of moving on that issue because it, it seems to be so toxic. A strong government uh, can actually then also tell uh, uh, the own uh, public, uh, the German electorate, uh, that you cannot have all the gains uh, and not share with the others and still believe that this will hold together. No? And that's, I think, that's the main reason why uh, this country and why Europe needs a 
a strong and capable government in Berlin. So if we're looking for reasons for optimism, one was that the, 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 the wreckers would be out. Another maybe macro argument uh, which people say is that Germany was too strong before. The Franco-German relationship was too unbalanced. Having a hegemonic Germany was uh, meant that whatever moves for European integration were proposed, they would be pushed back from countries who were who were nervous about a single country being in such a dominant role. Could a weaker Germany, paradoxically, uh, be good both for the Franco-German relationship because it would be more balanced, but also for the prospects of bringing Europeans back together again? Hmm. I don't. I. I it sounds like me. It sounds to me like we're really trying to see the positive side here. I mean, honestly, the the Franco-German relationship. We wanted to balance that out by having a stronger France, not a weaker Germany. And we do have a stronger France. So you know, having a weaker, uh, having a strong Germany now would actually be good, and it would be balanced. So I don't. I don't really think that that's that that's a solution. And then um, we don't actually have a weaker Germany in Europe, we have a politically weakened Germany. But of course, the issue in Europe has always at least been partly about economics. And Germany economically is still very strong. And that still means that it is strong within the EU, no matter what kind of government and how weak that government is. Okay, well, it's been a pretty interesting discussion. I think we, uh, in spite of your confident predictions, still have a degree of uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen next, what it means for Germany, what it means for Europe. And the good news is that means we're going to have to have many more discussions on the world in 30 minutes about all of these topics. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, however, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, Josef, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I have two uh, interesting books um, um, on my table. One uh, you know well, uh, Mark, and the other one is just coming out. That is Ivan Kastev After Europe, which I think has the wonderful German title, Europa Dämmerung, which is borrowed from the word Götterdämmerung from Wagner's uh, Nibelungen. Um, And the other one is uh, Richard Young's Europe Reset, New Directions for the EU. The interesting thing is both books um, basically take as their starting point uh, the the elite uh, public gap uh, that there is and the question whether the European political model uh, can be sustained, whether actually Europe with its crisis response reflexes uh, of the the political system of the European Union is capable of addressing um, that gap and and addressing the challenges uh, that arise from it. And uh, um, while, while uh, Ivan's book, I think, is, is very strong on, a, on, a, on, a, on the analysis, on a very good uh, look uh, that he takes at the current situation, and a really eye-opening uh, a book, uh, Richard Young's is more of an, of an agenda. He believes that... Uh, Actually, pretty much like Macron, that, that Europe needs a mobilization of citizens through conventions and through town hall meetings of all sorts. So he basically wants to, to, to rebuild Europe very much through a, a big uh, Europe-wide bottom-up um, uh, process, uh, which I have some difficulties to see, but uh, it's an interesting approach. Okay, what about you, Rika? Uh, I'm going to recommend something completely unrelated to the topic. Namely, of course, again, science fiction, um, which regular listeners may know that I love. But this is old science fiction, namely H.G. Wells' The War in the Air from 1908, I think. And this is H.G. Wells trying to think through what 
um, the First World War, that hadn't happened yet at the time, of course, um, could look like with the in inclusion of aerial warfare. Absolutely fascinating read. Okay, and I'm on this podcast too often to have a new book every week, but I did read a very <laughs> interesting article um, in the New York Review of Books by Timothy Gartenash called It's the Kultur Stupid, which... Um, talks about the rise of xenophobic right-wing nationalism in Germany um, and around the elections, looking at the IFD and what role it plays. And I think uh, that provides an interesting backdrop to the discussion that we've just been having. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do tell everybody that you know about it by writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, tweeting on it, and above all, racing straight to the iTunes rate ratings and reviews page where you can give us a review and if you send it to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu you will be eligible to be entered into a competition to win one of the iconic ecfr end of the world podcast mugs which say that the end is near but the coffee is hot we will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts and you'll find uh, much wisdom about the German elections written by our two guests on that page as well as the other publications that we talked about but for now from Josef Janning and Ulrike Franke and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Bulli Joining.